Hi guys, thank you for listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. Uh, I'm super happy because it's finally getting nice enough outside that we can film outside again instead of in our apartment, so that's super nice. And uh, today I'm going to be trying a little bit of a different format. Uh, I've been having people send in audio recording questions on my Anchor, and then I'm going to go through and answer some of them. So uh, in my link tree, you'll find a link to the anchor page where you can leave an audio recording and if you have any questions or topics that you'd like to see me address on the podcast uh please feel free to go leave me a little voice recording um if you're watching on youtube please like and subscribe it makes a big difference um if you're listening on one of the podcast websites please subscribe and if you haven't already also consider checking out my patreon it's a really great way to support my work it's five dollars a month to get access to an extra episode every month that is not anywhere else as well as other written content and stuff like that so yeah um with that let's get started hi i was hoping you could talk about forming relationships with people and having a secure attachment style despite feelings of not wanting to be in that secure attachment for example getting bored or not having as much interest as opposed to someone with an opposite attachment style where you don't meet each other's needs um and really how to start getting comfortable with secure attachment um and lean in towards these things despite your subconscious wanting you to go towards an opposite attachment style such as avoidant and anxious in relationships. Well, thank you for the question and that's definitely something that a lot of people can relate to. Um, There's a reason that anxious and avoidant people tend to be attracted to each other, even though um, when there's unhealed anxious avoidant dynamics, it can be pretty triggering and chaotic and distressing for both parties, but they're attracted to each other and that has a lot to do with familiarity and comfort. Um, A lot of the times when you have unhealed attachment trauma and you have an insecure attachment style that you haven't really begun to work on yet inadvertently when you meet someone who's secure or could be a secure partner you actually feel like maybe kind of bored not as attracted Um, this is also partially because anxious and avoidant relationships specifically they tend to have this kind of push-pull and like ups and downs highs and lows instead of being more steady and consistent and especially if you were kind of used to that roller coaster um, in your relationships growing up that those highs and those lows and that kind of unpredictability can be mistaken for like passion or excitement and an activated attachment system gets mistaken for like a really intense connection and chemistry right like all of those attachment anxieties coming up um strengthens the sense of like the bond and the significance of the relationship when when your kind of attachment patterns are being activated by someone so definitely not alone and I think for most people, a big goal in doing attachment work is getting to the point where you actually will be attracted to people who can offer you like a secure relationship um, where you maybe start to be turned off by people who are like inconsistent or unreliable or trigger you. But that's not where most of us start. So, I mean, in terms of advice, I think um, I usually try to stay away from telling people like, 
you shouldn't date or you shouldn't be in relationships. Um, I think it's a very like individual choice. And I mean, some people start trauma recovery already in a relationship. Some people take a long break. Um, but if you notice that you're consistently attracted to people who are not treating you well and who are like delaying <laughs> you being able to heal or change your attachment patterns, I think it is worth it to like maybe take a step back from dating for a while um, while you go to therapy, while you learn more about attachment and while you work on yourself. Um, I specifically think it it can be really helpful to do a lot of self-education on what security is and what a secure relationship looks like. Like a secure relationship um, really isn't boring. (laughs) It's safe and it's consistent, but that might feel boring without the context and without the experience to kind of rest on. So, you know, learning a lot about these different attachment patterns, about how to recognize if someone is uh, meeting your needs, seems attuned to you, responsive, reciprocal. You can do like writing, journaling, and reflection on what has been painful or chaotic about your past relationships? How would that look different? You know, what would it be like to be with someone who consistently put effort into meeting your needs, who communicated well with you? Um, you know, who was able to provide a sense of stability instead of like a roller coaster relationship. You can do like reflection on that. And then, you know, I mean, if you can, I feel like I always have to emphasize like finding a therapist who understands attachment and can really like work on this stuff with you makes a really big difference you know there's only so much that I can provide in like the education sense because so much of it is personal individual work that you're going to need to do um hopefully within the context of like a good therapy relationship but yeah I mean I would say like take a step back from dating learn as much as you can about this stuff um Maybe also identify friendships and what you like in a friend and and what makes a friendship feel secure. Because, like, often people have really different um, romantic patterns than friendship patterns. Like, a lot of people are maybe, like, would not really be that attracted to a friend that was really inconsistent or or flaky or unstable. Um, But in romantic attachments, like, it activates their attachment patterns in a different way. So... Focusing on creating security and and better communication with friendships and um, valuing, appreciating the friends that have been stable or um, consistent for you. If you have friends that have been stable and consistent, if you haven't, you know, trying to find ways to practice those skills, like practice security and good communication and consistency with friends, with a therapist, with like whoever you think you can have reparative experiences with. Um, And I think another thing that I really recommend is if you do get to a point where you're interested in dating or you like somebody, talk about attachment stuff right at the beginning. Like, I know that kind of scares people, and I'm not saying you have to delve right into your childhood trauma, but I don't know, after I was in all kind of dysfunctional relationships in my teens and early 20s, I took two years of like mostly being by myself and working on stuff. And then when I met my boyfriend, I was like pretty straight up from the beginning that I was like, I don't want to be in a relationship unless it can be healthy. Like I really want something that's going to break my patterns instead of repeating them. And I think having those conversations early on was really helpful for kind of creating a standard for good communication and 
just opening that dialogue. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think if someone is able to discuss those things with you openly and be receptive, that's probably a good sign, um, that it's somebody, somebody that you could like work on attachment patterns with and who would be able to kind of help create new patterns and, um, disconfirming experiences, you know, experiences that disconfirm your core beliefs about yourself and about other people. So yeah, um, I, I mean, I think recognizing it is a really good first step and, um, there's a lot of reading and resources that you can use to find out more about attachment. Um, check out my bookshelf, my resource guide. I have a bunch of like articles and books written about attachment there that might be helpful for kind of beginning to understand this stuff more. And I think the, uh, the more you address the childhood wounds of insecure relationships and tap into the pain and the loss and go through the emotional process that you need to go through, um, the, the more you'll be able to shift your desires for people away from what's familiar and towards something new. And that's really what that shift is about is like, it's uncomfortable to get into a healthy relationship when you're not used to it, but it's a good kind of uncomfortable. It's a good kind of familiar and it just takes some work to start turning in that direction. So yeah, I hope that helps. I hope that begins to answer your question a little bit. Hello, I am a sex abuse and sexual assault survivor and I am on my healing journey and one of the areas that I'm struggling with is my weight and binge eating. So the way that I feel after a lot of meditation on the subject is that being thin equals being sexually attractive, which means being victimized. And any therapy that I have done to date has just been to focus on being healthy and that will protect me and it's just missing the mark. So I was wondering if you had any um, insights on how you can heal um, from sexual trauma and end the binge eating kind of cycle and feeling safe in your body even when it's small and healthy. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's such a good question. And I'm sorry that you're going through that. Um, I think I'm going to break this down into a few parts. So first of all, I, I want to touch on this idea of core beliefs and operational beliefs. So um, core beliefs are often subconscious and they're things that um, maybe we learn growing up or that uh, become core beliefs after a traumatic experience to kind of try to make sense of things and organize things. And then operational beliefs are the beliefs that kind of stack on top of those for this is how I can handle that. If I do this, then this can happen or this won't happen. So for example, um, you know, a child who doesn't receive the love they need might have the core belief of I'm not good enough. And then the operational belief is if I behave really well, then people will love me more. Right. So I think what this, what you're talking about you know, this idea that you can protect yourself by, um, you know, not having your body get too small or by being like less sexually attractive in a typical sense in our society is an example of this idea of like core beliefs and operational beliefs. And I don't think it's helpful to really target like the operational belief and be like, is that real? You know what I mean? Because 
operational beliefs developed to keep us safe. So you had this experience where your power was taken away from you, like in sexual assault, you lose your agency. Um, in sexual abuse, you lose your autonomy and your empowerment and your um, self-protective capacities feel violated. And so um, that sense of loss of safety and loss of control, it makes sense that from that experience, you would develop an operational belief that is designed to protect you, which is, you know, kind of this idea that um, binge eating and kind of protecting your body in a certain way um, is like a shield against the kind of trauma that you experienced. So it makes sense. You're trying to keep yourself safe. And this is the belief that developed. Um, I, I think instead of focusing on like the body size and like, you know, whatever your therapist trying to be like, well, if you're healthy, you can protect yourself. I do think that's kind of missing the mark because I think really what might be underneath some of that is the need to grieve and feel anger and get in touch with your emotions, um, work through the fact that this wasn't your fault and there probably was not anything that you could have done to prevent it, right? Like that's the whole thing with sexual assault. Um, people blame themselves for so many reasons. You know, there's people who self-isolate because they were like, well, I shouldn't have gone to that party or I shouldn't have gone on a date. You know, there's people who avoid romance or sex for years. There's a lot of people who experience what you're experiencing right now with kind of trying to like protect themselves from attention um, by changing their body. And I think a lot of it boils down to, you know, an attempt to feel in control. And I think that attempt to feel in control is self-medication for how deeply not in control you feel and how much your power is stripped away from you when you experience sexual violence of any kind. So, I mean, I think this is work that definitely needs to be done with like a really good trauma-informed therapist, specifically one that understands sexual assault and sexual trauma. But I think um, the, the work that needs to be done that's deeper, that might begin to help you heal and provide a deeper sense of relief is to um, process those feelings of helplessness and powerlessness and work through any sense of self-blame. I've talked before on other episodes about how shame and self-blame serve a purpose because as you're blaming yourself, um, you're also in a weird kind of double-edged sword way empowering yourself. For example, like a child blaming themselves for not being good enough yes, it hurts. And yes, that's toxic shame. But at the same time, if I believe I'm not getting love because I'm not good enough, that means I can do something to change it. And in some ways that's less painful than accepting like this wasn't my fault. And that means there's nothing I could have done. Right. And I think that applies for sexual trauma. Like it wasn't your fault and there is nothing that you could have done. And, um, people get assaulted at all sizes, you know, um, being sexually, desirable in like a typical way and conforming to like thin beauty standards um doesn't doesn't uh change <laughs> the likelihood of someone violating you or hurting you um you know women and and people who are not thin still experience sexual violence all the time and that's not to try to delegitimize the self-protective belief that you've developed but just to say that like I think that belief is serving a purpose and I think that purpose is that it's probably protecting you from deeper pain of the lack of power that you really experienced in that scenario. So like some of the things that I think could maybe be 
worked through in therapy, if you find a therapist who can um, really work through this with you, is like grief work, you know, grieving for the loss of safety and the loss of power, um, anger, um, working through any shame or self-blame as you realize it's it wasn't your fault and there was nothing that you could do. Um, also understanding that that means it's really, really fucking unfair because this thing just happened to you and like that hurts in a different way. Having a therapist who knows how to like hold space for that, that pain and that anger. And then I think the other big thing that needs to happen, um, is probably like a somatic bottom up approach to help you regulate your nervous system because binge eating is, I'm guessing like part of it might be, you know, connected to this, um, idea about like keeping your body bigger as a way to protect you. But I also think a lot of the time binge eating serves like a self-regulatory purpose. So it's being used to like regulate the nervous system and, um, you know, quell feelings of anxiety and fear and CPTSD symptoms, you know, a lack of felt safety in the body. So as you're working through, um, the emotional side of things and the beliefs and kind of processing that experience. Um, I think targeting healing the nervous system is going to be really important because what you want is to regain a sense of safety in your body and, um, that feeling of being violated in your body, like sexual assault, which violates your physical body makes it really hard to feel safe in your body. And a lot of people binge eat or use substances or use other like checkout behaviors to cope with that feeling of not being safe. So bottom-up modalities, um, somatic therapy, EMDR, um, any sort of nervous system and polyvagal informed therapies that can help you get in touch with your nervous system and um, reconnect with your feelings of safety in the world and in your body. I, I would also look into like what are other opportunities in your life to feel safe and reconnect? What are the spaces that you feel safest in? Who are the people that you feel safest with? Um, any experiences of like safety and relaxation and connection that you can access are going to help you re-strengthen your vagus break or your vagal break and your vagus nerve which is basically your body's ability to like climb back up to a sense of safety when you're triggered or dysregulated and I'm guessing from your question that you might be kind of frozen in like a survival state right now and in a survival state you don't feel safe you don't feel connected and you're totally focused on self-protection self-soothing um whatever feels like it'll keep you safe which I think is probably part of the binge eating so yeah, I mean, I I would definitely recommend looking into therapists who are really adequate in sexual trauma and bottom-up modalities. And I hope that some of the things that I've said provided a little bit more perspective. You know, um, no matter what size you are, we all deserve to feel safe in the world. And I'm sorry that you had your safety taken away from you and it wasn't your fault. And I hope that you are able to get the support that you need to heal. I'm sorry, the therapy that you have been in has been kind of missing the mark. So I really hope that helps. Hello, really love your podcast and admire you in general. Um, so I was wondering, we know that there's an overlap with a lot of things with CPTSD, ADHD, and ASD. Um, and sometimes to be diagnosed 
with ASD or ADHD, someone will say, oh, well, we need to look at before the trauma of the person has CPTSD. How can you assert that if the person with complex PTSD has always been traumatized? Um, Because I know I'm neurodivergent and I know some people don't see people with CPTSD as neurodivergent, but there's just some things that are not explained, like sensory issues and other things. And my therapist just says I'm not autistic, so I don't know. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for the question. And yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely true that there can be confusing overlapping symptoms between CPTSD and ADHD slash ASD, which is Autism Spectrum Disorder for anyone who doesn't recognize the acronym. And um, it can be really confusing. <laughs> A lot of people are misdiagnosed or not diagnosed when they have ADHD and ASD or CPTSD. Like these are all diagnoses that are frequently missed or diagnosed, misdiagnosed as other things. So it can be really tricky. Um, I've also heard people say that, like, well, can you identify, you know, if you had this neurodivergence before the trauma? But for someone who experienced early developmental trauma, who doesn't have a memorable before the trauma time in their life, that really isn't going to work. So it totally makes sense. And that's definitely a challenging space to be in. I think... um, The issue is that a lot of therapists and evaluators are not really trained in how to recognize ADHD and ASD in um, in collaboration or combination with trauma. Like a lot of times when someone has trauma and they have autism or and they have ADHD, like I've heard people say they were diagnosed as borderline, as bipolar, as like all these different things um, when really what it was was this combination of the neurodivergence and the CPTSD the trauma kind of like melding together and magnifying each other. Um, Not to say that you couldn't also have those diagnoses and ADHD, ASD, CPTSD, but a lot of therapists and doctors um, kind of miss, miss how to differentiate and untangle those interactions. So, I mean, I think I would say my best advice is get a second opinion, like see someone else. I've heard so many people say that their doctor told them you don't have ADHD or you don't have autism and then they got an evaluation from someone else from a specialist and they actually did. Um, There also are symptoms of ADHD and autism that are not really trauma symptoms. I think sensory issues is one of them like sure uh, trauma can dysregulate your nervous system and make you more easily overwhelmed or you know have anxiety but very specific like sensory sensitivities um are not really like a common CPTSD symptom. They are a common autism symptom. Um, it's still, it's taken me a lot of time to untangle, like what is my ADHD and what was CPTSD? It's gotten easier as I've gotten further into CPTSD recovery. Cause like the more stabilized I am and the better I'm doing, the more I'm like, oh yeah, that, that ADHD is really still there. Like these are still ways that I just don't function like everybody else. But I mean, there's also plenty of ADHD symptoms that aren't particularly overlapping with CPTSD too. I don't want to like list too many of them out because I don't have my DSM in front of me and I don't want to like oversimplify it um, or accidentally give incorrect information. I'm still kind of learning to understand the ins and outs of my ADHD diagnosis. So for example, like, you know, I have certain ways that I really need to learn 
and certain ways of learning that really don't work for me. But when I also had like CPTSD symptoms, which gave me a lot of anxiety and panic, it would like become this really like I would have panic attacks about my schoolwork and like break down and stuff like that. And now without as much anxiety and without like as much panic and stuff like that, I'll still get really overwhelmed, (laughs) but I'll be able more to just take a break and be like, okay, like how do I need to approach this and, you know, problem solve it with someone or ask to approach the project in a different way or or that sort of thing. So um, I think I've been rambling a little bit, but I think really what I'm trying to get at is that it's very complicated, but there absolutely are clear traits that ADHD and autism come with and that a, a trained professional who really knows how to evaluate should be able to help you with. So I would not just take your therapist telling you that you don't have autism or that you don't have ADHD at face value. I would definitely say like pursue a second opinion, find someone who specializes in it, find someone who, you know, is competent in trauma and neurodivergency and can kind of help you understand where the two meet and where they differentiate because there are differences. Um, and it, I think it just is a matter of finding the right professionals to help you kind of understand yourself. I hope that helps. Thank you so much for your question. Um, Thank you guys again for listening. Um, I'm really excited. My next episode is going to be interviewing Melissa Parks about attachment-focused EMDR. So stay tuned for that. It'll be out on Wednesday. And yeah, thank you again for listening. Um, Please subscribe or leave a rating or um, check out my Patreon if you want to support my work. And yeah, that's, that's all for today.